Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on the programme is Aaron Aurora, a Church of England bishop and the author of the book, Stick With Love. Bishop Aaron, welcome to Facing the Canon. Really good to be with you. Great to have you. We we first met when I was doing a Just 10 series uh, in Birmingham, which is where you grew up. Absolutely. Almost 20 years ago now. I mean, it's frightening to think so much time has passed since uh, we met, since we did it. And what a fantastic series of events that was in Birmingham and the number of people who came, who heard and who came to faith. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it was so encouraging. Now, you growing up in Birmingham, uh, your mother, uh, a Hindu, your father, yeah. a Sikh. What, yeah. what was life like for you growing up? Uh, we were largely um, a fairly lightly observant religious household. My uh, mum and dad ran their own business. Uh, selling ladies' clothes. Uh, we have a, a market stall and a shop. And so it was pretty full on uh, in terms of there weren't really days off. There was Sunday, but otherwise it was six days a week. And then when I was about eight years old, my dad died. And so uh, myself and my older brother, uh, my mom was left with the two of us, which was a challenge. Uh, and also that then meant uh, one parent family. She was working all hours, J. John to keep a roof over their head. And so things then became quite industrious. Uh, we grew up pretty much as a, what used to be known as latchkey kids, you know, letting ourselves in yes. after school, sorting ourselves out. And then in the evenings, going with mom uh, to buy stuff for the shop and the stalls, in addition to. Um, you know, just trying to get on with life. And what it did mean, J. John, is that, yeah, I have had the uh, blessing and opportunity to meet all kinds of incredible people. Absolutely. Archbishops, prime ministers, presidents. But I respect my mom more than all of them. Oh. Because of everything that she did in terms of the sacrifices that she made to raise us the way she did. Oh, Aaron, that's beautiful. Now, uh, you're a a serious supporter of Aston Villa. <laughs> As a Birmingham boy, I think it was incumbent upon me to support my local team. And for me, that meant Aston Villa. But you weren't able to go to a football match. But then one day you saw a poster uh, advertising a particular Christian event. Tell us about that. So growing up... Um, back in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, football grounds weren't really safe places for people of colour to be. Uh, they were recruiting grounds for the far right. And so as a chubby teenage Asian boy, my mum uh, probably rightly thought a football ground on a Saturday afternoon wasn't a safe place to be. So despite my utter desire to go and watch Aston Villa play. I was never allowed to go. And then one day, walking home from school, I saw outside my local church a poster that said there was some guy coming to Villa Park and they were laying on coaches 
to go and see him and that the coaches were going to be free. Now, I didn't know, J. John, who this guy was. And he was called Billy Graham. Yeah. And I didn't know who or what Billy Graham was. But what I did know was that he was going to be at Villa Park. And at last, I had my opportunity to go and worship at the temple of Villa Park. And so I bothered my mom and Patrick and said, I want to go, I want to go, can we go? And she said, okay, we can go. And when I got there that night, Billy Graham talked about Jesus. He talked about forgiveness. He talked about freedom. He talked about a new life in Christ. He talked about the triumph of Jesus on the cross. And at the end of him speaking, he said, if you would like to invite Jesus into your life, Come on then, come on down onto the pitch and someone will pray a prayer with you. And I looked at my mum and I said, can I go? And she said, it's your choice. You want to go, you go. And so, J. John, I took the opportunity. I took a step onto that hallowed turf of Villa Park. I went onto the pitch and I invited Jesus into my life. And to this day, it is without a doubt, the best decision I have ever made. I remember getting home that night, lying in bed, and just filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to God as if he was in the chair right next to me, telling him, speaking to him, listening, just full of joy. And I'll never forget how it felt that night to have invited Jesus into my life. And, and Aaron, the, the amazing thing about your story is you, you were not brought up to know anything about Christianity. You, the first gospel message you heard, to quote John Wesley, your heart was strangely warmed. And, and preaching, um, Aaron, works. God yes. uses it. God uses Absolutely. the proclamation of the gospel. And I think part of it was, of course, I've been um, brought up, particularly back now, say, school assemblies, where people prayed the Lord's Prayer, talked about Jesus. School assemblies were of a Christian nature. But um, while some of them may have nudged you towards an understanding of God or kind of subtly pointed to who Jesus was, what you never had was a full explanation of the gospel. And I think having heard that presented in the way that Billy Graham did present it was, yeah, it's irresistible, the message Absolutely. of the gospel. Absolutely. And to hear it in that way. I think the strange thing, Jay John, and it's one of the things that I learned from you, actually, um, when you did Just 10, is that one of the things that you make clear with your team when you do Just 10 is there's always got to be a follow-up in yes. place working with local churches. And one of the strange things for me is that having given my life to Jesus that night, I didn't go to church for three years. And the reason wasn't that I didn't want to. The reason was I didn't know how to. Yes. I didn't know Christians. I didn't know um, what you're supposed to do when you go into a building with a pointy roof. And I was a self-conscious teenage boy. I didn't want to get there and not know when to stand up or sit down or say the wrong thing. So I didn't go. And it wasn't until uh, a friend of mine uh, had just been released from uh, 
a young defenders institution, or Borstal, as it was then known. And he came out and um, he was looking to do something different on Friday nights to the thing that got him in trouble in the first place. And his sisters went to a local Baptist church. And they said, look, they run a youth club there. And so we started going on a Friday night. And we've been going a, uh, yeah, a couple of months. And the guy who ran it, normal guy, worked in the normal job, but volunteered running uh, this youth club at his local church. He just turned to me and says, look, what are you doing on Sunday morning? I said, teenage boy, not doing anything on a Sunday morning. And he said, why not come to church? And that's where my church-going journey began. And that church, that place became my first Christian community where I learned uh, about what it is to be part of the body of Christ, where I learned more about the Bible, where I learned more about discipleship. Uh, and it was an amazing community. Yes, I know. And I'm glad you pointed that out to Aaron. You know, we do need to be part of the community of the church. Uh, one of my favourite St. Augustine quotes is, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother. Mm, and it's so true, isn't it? Uh, now, you, you, you then... Um, went on, uh, you trained and became a solicitor for our global audience, you became a lawyer. Um, and then from that, you ended up becoming a, uh, a church leader ordained in the Church of England, and a vicar in various places. And now you're a bishop. Now, tell us, what what are your responsibilities as a bishop? So as a bishop, I serve in the Diocese of Leeds. Uh, the Diocese of Leeds is, uh, in English terms, fairly big. Geographically, it's the biggest diocese in England. It was three dioceses, and 10 years ago, it was brought into one. So I'm responsible uh, for the city of Leeds, uh, which is the uh, fourth biggest uh, city in the UK. Uh, have about um, 80 churches in Leeds, Church of England churches, 31 church schools, uh, chaplaincies, in prisons, in hospitals, in universities. Wow. Well, that's that's quite a, a responsibility, isn't it? I, I want to talk to you, uh, Bishop, about your new book, uh, Stick With Love. Uh, it's an Advent book. What does that mean when we say it's an Advent book? So the book is really just a series of reflections to take us through uh, the church season of Advent, uh, uh, waiting and preparing for Christmas, for the coming of the light into the world. And traditionally, Advent uh, has been used as a time of preparation, almost uh, like a spiritual MOT, an annual uh, spiritual uh, self-examination, where you prepare both, on one hand, uh, a time to prepare for the last things, for judgment, for heaven, for help, for death, to consider these things, but also during that time to be preparing uh, for uh, the joy of the Christ child, to be preparing for the incarnation, to be recognising that God enters human history in a child and comes into the world so that we might be forgiven our sin. Now, the title, Stick With Love. Tell us, unpack that for us. 
So it's taken from a phrase uh, used by Martin Luther King from a speech that he gave uh, entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? And in that speech, he said, um, I have decided to stick with love because hate is too great a burden to bear. And I'm not talking about, he said, uh, when I talk about love, I'm not talking about that emotional bosh. He said, I'm talking about a hard love, a strong love, an enduring love, uh, the love of Christ Jesus, what we would call an agape love. And he uh, talks about the opposition that he has faced as a civil rights leader when he made the speech. The long journeys and opposition uh, that uh, black women and men faced at that time in America for equal treatment. But he said in the face of maltreatment, in the face of opposition, in the face of the pernicious sin of racism, I have decided to stick with love. And actually, it's, the book contains a series of daily reflections, stories of women and men, Christian women and men, whose stories really are stories of hope. Um, and it culminates on Christmas Eve with the story of Martin Luther King and how at his lowest ebb, his lowest moment, he turned to God one night in his kitchen table and said, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And he heard the voice of Jesus say, I will never leave you alone, never alone. Stand up, Martin Luther, for justice. Stand up for righteousness. And I promise I will be with you. Wow, that's so powerful, Bishop. Uh, can you share one or two of the stories that you've put into this book? Yeah, so there are... Uh, the book works uh, because, of course, I'm a bishop in the Church of England, uh, alongside uh, people whom I have known and have inspired me along my own journey. There are also stories of those who uh, we commemorate in the Church of England's lectionary throughout December. <coughs> so it begins with uh, St. Francis Xavier, who... Um, was an apostle to India uh, as well as Japan. And some estimates say that during his lifetime, he brought half a million people to Christ, which is astounding. But on reflecting on his ministry, part of what I do is recognise that he actually wasn't the first person to evangelise India, which is where my parents are from. And actually that honour belongs to Doubting Thomas. Yes. Who we know as Doubting Thomas, but Thomas the Apostle, who um, went to India, to its southern coast, and where there are churches now all over the world, known as Martoma churches, yes. the churches of Thomas. But then tracing the journey from Thomas to St. Francis uh, is the kind of mixture that you get to see of um, different denominations and what they hold to be truth or not, and then the mixture with that of empire. You see, um, that story in some way uh, coincides with my own. When I uh, came to be baptised at 16 years old, uh, I went to my mother, who, I, as I said, I respect hugely and love, 
and said, uh, I want to get baptised. And uh, she was like, why would you want to do that? You're selling out. You're being brainwashed by the culture around you. Indians, she says, we're not Christians. And I had to say to her, Mom, Christianity was in India years before it came to England. There are more Christians in India than there are Sikhs. Christianity is not a white Western religion. No. And she, um, even though I explained this and gave my version, I think her fears, J. John, were rooted yes. in some of the missionary uh, practices of the early 20th century that led to uh, some understandable charges of exploitation. So there were, in northern India, uh, missionaries who converted people who became known as rice Christians. So people who were living in uh, grinding poverty, in desperate hunger, missionaries came along and said, if I give you a bowl of rice, will you convert to Jesus? And of course they take the bowl of rice. I'd take the bowl of rice if I was starving. And then they will convert. And my mum thought that's what Christians did. And so she approached it, I think understandably, with a sense of, look, we've got our own rice. Why do you need to become a Christian? And so <clears throat> for me, there was the um, challenge of, both saying, actually, the gospel uh, and the meaning of the gospel outshines the methods yes. that some people have used. To, uh, and to agree with my mum that, look, what those people did was terrible and was wrong. But you can't judge the message by uh, some of those methods. No. Um, but that reflection, in some ways, ties into my own story and, uh, along with that story of St. Francis, there are other stories throughout the book of individuals who have really impacted on my own discipleship, have been great mentors to me. One of them is Dr. John Centermood, uh, former Archbishop of York, who I worked for uh, in Birmingham and also in York. And the way that uh, his discipleship, his example of daily prayer, his way of being open to the leading of the Holy Spirit taught me so much and really formed me in my own discipleship too. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Bishop Aaron, I, I, I love it that it's filled with lots of stories uh, about uh, real people. And uh, I, I really do commend the books. Um, but, you know, stick with love. And of course, stick with love, but hold on to truth. And I think yes. when you were explaining about, you know, uh, it was with your mother, and I understand that because I'm Greek and I grew up in London in a Greek Cypriot community and there's there's like a culture battle going on. Yes. So, th so there's this thing of stick with love, hold to the truth. And it's, yes. it's holding them both, isn't it? One of the things I, I really respect about you, Bishop, um, is your passion, and I've, I've known, I've been aware of this for many years, your, your passion for justice, um, and you've done quite a bit. You've even been on demonstrations. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think gr growing up, one of the things that I uh, really uh, 
appreciated about who Jesus is is um, the Nazareth Manifesto in Luke 4. Yes. Where he stands in the synagogue, uh, opens the scroll and reads from Isaiah and speaks of the year of the Lord's favour. And at that time, as I was learning this growing up in the 80s, there were various organisations around the world fighting for justice that were led by Christian women and men. Uh, there was uh, the anti-apartheid movement with Desmond Tutu and Trevor Huddleston in the background. There was the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Uh, there were organisations like the Samaritans, Help the Aged, Oxfam, uh, the Worldwide Hospice Movement, all of them founded by Christian women and men, Amnesty International. And you had Christian women and men leading or having founded these organisations who spoke of God's love and God's justice, the character of God as a just God. It spoke of that God that we hear Amos and Hosea and Isaiah speaking of. And that informed who I was and also how I expressed my faith. So I would be as you say, on demonstrations for young men whose lives had been <clears throat> taken in racist murders. Yes. People like Ricky Reel, Rohit Doggle, Stephen Lawrence. Yes. And I'd be on those demonstrations and people would say, so what brings you here? And I would talk about Jesus. Yes. I would talk about Jesus and a God of justice, and Jesus being on the side of those who cry out for justice, and how the position before us was one of injustice, and how God had something to say about this. Uh, I'm reminded, uh, Bishop, of Micah 6, verse 8, where it has that wonderful little question, what does God require of you? Of you. And it, and it says, well, and, and what an answer. He wants three things from you, <laughs> from us, you know, and the first is to do justice, do to love, love mercy, mercy and walk humbly with God. So how, Bishop, how would you define justice? I think at its heart, justice flows from who God is, uh, the character of God. Um, if you take um, racism as uh, an example, we know from uh, the New Testament, from Galatians, from Colossians, we know that we, once we are uh, baptised, that we are new creations in Christ. There is no uh, slave, there is no free. There is no male, there is no female. There is um, no Scythian, uh, nor Gentile. That we are one in Christ. Uh, and that means any treatment, less favourable treatment of someone, based on the colour of their skin, based on what they look like, is an affront to our understanding of our Christian identity of who we are in Christ. And so anyone who then uh, starts treating someone else differently, any systems 
that we have that are built around institutionalizing that less favorable treatment through systems, through the way people uh, can access services or uh, the way the police treat you, say, that becomes a matter of injustice because it falls short of that equal treatment that we have as sisters and brothers in Christ. Thank you, uh, Bishop. We we need to grapple with these issues more, and and you've been doing that for a while. Uh, within the Church uh, of England, you chaired a board uh, regarding racism, and sadly, so much goes on that uh, it's appalling, isn't it? I think one of the challenges for me, I um, I spent thirty years. I think, in the Church of England, without ever being in a service where another Anglican priest looked like me, either preaching or presiding at communion. Now, I served during that time in London, in Birmingham, in Wolverhampton, now also in some places that, you know, like Durham or Harrogate, where you don't find multicultural uh, uh, cities. But in our country, part of the thing is you want to be saying to young people, there's a phrase that you've got to see it to be it. Where are, if we're saying to young black and Asian and minority ethnic women and men, come into the church, there is a place here for you. And the Church of England particularly, the Anglican church, to say, you will find a home here. You will find a place um, where you can be part of family. If they look around and they can see nobody who looks like them or think, well, I can't be here because the leaders of this church, there's no one who looks like me. There's no one who I can have as a role model. There's no one. All the leadership... Uh, is not like me. Then our task of being a church for all of the people of England, which is the mission of the Church of England, it becomes that much more difficult and harder if we say, well, actually, we're only the church for a bit of England, or we're only the church for these kind of people in England. It is essential for our mission. So not only is this uh, an issue of justice, it's an issue of mission and evangelism, and say, come and find a spiritual home here, because you will be welcome, you will find a place here, of course you will, rather than people coming and saying, you know, I could never be at home here. Bishop Aaron, you, you are very refreshing. <laughs> I love your passion, and I love your compassion, and uh, Thank you for taking the time to join us on Facing the Canon. It's been lovely and a real blessing to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, I really hope you've enjoyed that. Can I encourage you uh, to pick up the Bishop's book for Advent daily readings and reading stories that will inspire you and infusing you faith, hope and love. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. 
No one is born a hero. They become one by repeatedly choosing to do what's heroic. Heroes of the Faith, Volume 2, J. John's brand new coffee table book, continues the testimonies of faith, sacrifice, love, generosity and perseverance found in Volume 1. Retelling 60 remarkable stories, including inspirational people such as Mahalia Jackson, Brother Andrew, Rasalama of Madagascar and David Wilkerson, we're reminded that the road to being a hero is to take heroic actions one step at a time. Heroes of the Faith, Volume 2, available now from jjohn.com and other bookshops.